Bing, bam, boom. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode 40. Wow, this is it. Episode 40. Oh, man, can't believe we made it this far and this long, but uh, incredible to think about. <laughs> it's funny, I get to think about it every time I get to shout out uh, the episode number when I get to talk to you guys on the show. So thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to all bus patrons who are coming back on the show. And to all you new bus patrons, welcome on the bus. Remember, there's only two options. You are either on the bus or off the bus. But there is well, there's a few rules, but one rule he's got now, I'm, I'm the bus driver. I'm your bus driver, taking you on this journey, talking to amazing, incredible people from all around this amazing world, this amazing planet, this universe and reality we live in. It's a great ride. It's a great time. There's some amazing things to learn from. It's amazing people to learn from and some amazing things to see. But you got to get out there and you got to be able to get out there. Get your hands dirty and experience things for yourself. Sometimes you cannot take people's opinions or even mine for, for, for face value. You got to go out to learn for yourself. And today's guest is somebody who I met out in the field. I was working on assignment for AJ Plus, is an affiliate of Al Jazeera. And I was covering a story about this woman who was working, uh, painting these murals all along the Mexico side of the border in Tijuana of stories of people who have been impacted by immigration between the Mexico and the United States over the past 60, 70 years. Some of these people had been, you know, uh, U.S. citizens, uh, never U.S. citizens, but some of them had uh, been brought here when they were children. So some of them, you know, maybe didn't even know they were illegally crossing the border X amount of years ago. Some of these people had even served in the military. I've got to meet and talk with these people. And I was just so hooked onto the story and I loved what Lisbeth, Lisbeth uh, de la Cruz Santana, who was our guest today, was uh, was working on down there. So I've stayed in contact with her and stayed in touch with her along the way, even after I uh, published the story. And I mean, immigration is a topic and subject in this country. It's a really hot topic. And I don't mean hot topics and popular. I mean, hot is in it's very conflicting. <laughs> you know, our country is is founded by immigrants. It's been fueled by immigrants, whether that's through labor or people constantly entering this country to, to work in this country. But at this moment, we like a lot of policy in our country, it's not up to date. It is not up to date with the current systems in play and how we can properly treat people, whether they're American citizens or not. So that is why I brought Elizabeth on the show today. She works in this field, she's studying this field, talking with people firsthand, and talking with people who are personally affected by immigration on the U.S. and Mexico side of the border on a daily and on a life, lifely lifetime basis. So please go check out all of her work, and I'm going to jump aside with Lisbeth De La Cruz Santana. Lisbeth, how are you? What's going on today? A lot of meetings, for sure. Um, I'm working on different projects on immigration and specifically humanitarian aid in Tijuana. So, you know, we're nearing the next phase for meeting maps. So it's been a full on day of just getting things planned out and following through with what's next. So it's been busy, but I'm good. Yeah, you're definitely someone who, you know, I get told, Brandon, when do you sleep? When do you ever take a, a second okay. off? <laughs> yeah. So, so you are somebody I could say is definitely probably more, more busy than I am and has their hands in, you know, as many or more projects than I'm working on. And it's funny, I know that's uh, how I came to know you. I was down there on assignment 
um, for Al Jazeera Plus, AJ Plus, to uh, tell the story you were working on down at the border in Tijuana. And before we go dive into all that, um, you know, I wanted to go over, you know, not just uh, everything you do and, you know, what you're working on. Because um, I know uh, you're out at UC Davis or are you up in Fresno right now? So now I'm in Fresno. It's summer and, you know, I don't want to be in UC Davis during the pandemic. So I decided to just move back home with my family. And Davis is outside of LA, like a little south, southeast. It's to the north. So it's right next to Sacramento. Oh, way up there. Yeah, it's oh. out there. Yeah. It's super you, pretty though. Yeah. You don't want to be out there. <laughs> no, I don't. I had a lot of culture clash. So I'd rather be, you know, in Fresno with you know, my people and just familiar faces. Culture crash. What is, what's that term? Mean? It's more like you fit in because you're from California, but not really. Because it's like you are inserted into another space where at the end of the day, you're a minority again. So it's, mm. I mean, I grew up in, in California and I, you know, in LA and I feel like I belong and I never had to question that belonging to that full extent. So now being there, it was like, it was just another thing that I had to go through while in grad school. Mm. And background, I know you um, are working on your PhD out at uc davis and then uh, is that in spanish and you're working on human rights or or is it just like a special specialty field you're working in yes a specialty field and within that i decided to focus more on immigration fascinating fascinating yeah immigration crazy hot buzz term crazy word triggers people no matter what side of the political aisle or what they believe or think about it but Mm -hmm. it's crazy because you know, even looking uh, before the show and looking at, you know, the base terms, um, I'd say even like the root word there is like migration. And it has that I am, that prefix in front of it. And it changes the whole word around. But when you think of migration, I think you think of animals first and you think of yes, uh-huh. like, hey, animals migrate. They, some do it every year. Some do it twice a year. And... And then I even went back and I was thinking about even like human geography, which is one of the, those first AP courses you take coming out of high school. And you're trying to understand, you know, there's uh, several themes. And I forgot all the other themes, but one theme <laughs> I remember, yeah. the main theme I did remember was movement and the movement of people, you know, and that again, migration and immigration is one of those things. And it's something we've been doing as a, as a people you know, I want to say 80,000 years, 200,000 years, just we've always been on the move since we've mm-hmm. left Africa and moved out of the place. And since we've really developed these nation states and we start drawing up these lines on a map, um, you know, a few hundred years ago, and they've been getting very, very, very more well-defined as we moved into this new industrial age and into the, you know, the age of space and the age of technology. And it's becoming harder for people to move or actually it's actually probably begin even more selective of who can move exactly or who's eligible to do it without being you know forced to migrate forcibly right with violence or if you're doing it basically what are the repercussions of doing it you know and i mean recently with like our policies in regards to asylum seeking there's a certain type of group of people who are not eligible anymore right or our policies during this administration are causing that perception to happen so even if it's a natural instinct it's just not eligible for many people but and again we're going backwards in time in terms of age of discovery let's get out let's leave europe let's branch out we want to get spices we want to trade we want business commerce we want to make the land we come from 
you know, wealthier. We want to bring more exotic things into the place to make it better. And as we move into this time, like, you know, everybody's been continuing to expand out and migrating out. And even like the formation of our country. I mean, I even think about myself and my family, where we come from. It's like, hey, we, we migrated here in the, you know, early 20th century and the mid 20th century. Like, you know, we, yeah. we were immigrants. We we're immigrants. We came here. We had to scrap and get through and, you know, try and make it in this country. And that's what this country is like kind of about. So, you know, exactly. Have, have we always been accepting? Have we not been accepting? Like what's been like the trend in terms of like historically kind of leading up to where we are now in terms of it kind of sways and teeters with administrations on how we, what kind of that's quotas it, are we can right? accept people coming in? So, I mean, I like that you brought that point right where your family came from because just thinking about manifest destiny, you know, we had the colonies and then we expanded to California. We had the gold rush. And then we started, you know, having migration from other countries that was somewhat accepted because we needed workers. Right. And then throughout history, you have Los Braceros, which are mostly like my grandparents were Braceros. So it's people who worked in the fields, you know, during that time. Um, so I think, there's been waves of different mi migrants, but we don't want them to stay. We just want them to do the work and they go back to where they, you know, originated. But historically, we've always been horrible towards migrants. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had concentration camps here as well. And when people learn that maybe in college and not so much in high school, you know, you become angry and just want to know more of why we would do so such something like this, right? But like I said, it's just we have a historical record of not being so welcoming of certain type of groups of folks that come here with the idea to make it in the U.S. Because that's and how you said it, you know, this is what we represent as a nation initially, you know, expanding and knowing more about diversity and making this a real rich nation. But at the end of the day, our tactics and our actual actions are not showing that. And we see it in every year that, you know, in our time we have DACA and then the parents of undocumented youth. So it's each time it's like a different group, but we historically have shown that we're not, you know, welcoming so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, again, I can relate back to the 19th and 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, but even before then, in terms of like thinking of the idea and the theme of like work and a job, like, you know. I still think those terms are, are still so new in terms of like, you know, we're talking in the spectrum of history, like 200, 300 years. Mm -hmm. Like before it was just, hey, you had to get some kind of land. You had to be able to make sure you farmed on that land and be able to take care of yourself and, you know, potentially, you know, have a family. And I even think, you know, even probably 300, 400 years ago, we were trading women as commodities in terms of like, hey, we'll give you this, this my daughter to make sure you're going to marry her mm -hmm. and it's just like we, we've come a long way however but like like that, that is where we started to develop like oh well hey now we have to leave our farms now we have to go into cities and we have to build these cities but you know we're getting to that point like you know in terms of especially when you're thinking like we want the kind of theme of immigration in the, in the u.s we want people to come in we want them to work but we want them to get the hell out after Thanks. but now he's getting everything you know um, I don't know if you've seen recently what has happened with, you know, international students. So let's say, let's bring that point that you brought in with the idea of working. Yes, we have that rhetoric of like, 
who is the good immigrant. So you would say a good immigrant is someone who works, is educated or wants to get educated in the U.S. But at the same time, that same profile of like students who come from other countries that want to study at our Ivy Leagues, at our call states or UC system, they have to go back, right? So now with the new policy that ICE rolled out this week, we're telling them that you either do this or you're deportable. So at the end of the day, even if you're educated, you're still vulnerable. It's funny you say that. Um, I have a bunch of uh, students when I was coaching basketball in Kuwait. Um, mm-hmm. A bunch of them uh, are now in school and university. Shout out to Fozon. I know you're listening. Uh, big fan of the show. And, you know, he's studying aerospace engineering or something along those lines at Embry-Riddle, which is right next to NASA mm-hmm. in like Titusville, Daytona Beach, Florida. This kid's really smart, really intelligent. And, you know, he messaged me actually last night. And it's funny, we're talking about this today. It's like, hey, coach, I don't know if you heard the news. Like, you know, I'm on a J-1 visa. And if I can't, if they say we have to do all of our classes online, I can't be here anymore. And I have to go home. And that's back into Kuwait for him. Even Mm -hmm. though he's kind of like, his family's on a work visa there because Mm -hmm. they're Indian Muslims. And they're living in Kuwait you know, in a Muslim majority country, but his dad is, uh, works as an engineer there. But, you know, it's just like, think about that stem of immigration and just being kicked out and going places, not having the security of what you would expect to, you know, either being a part of the nation state or, you know, living inside of one, you know, that, that certain security we give to, to governments to provide for us. So it's, uh, what I mean, will they, will they execute on that? Or, I mean, who, who, We'll actually go back into ICE itself. Like, what is ICE? Who? When was it developed? And and then maybe you can lead into you know yes. how that's going to pertain into what's going to happen with these kids and why they can execute on removing these kids from the country. So I forgot the year that ICE was created, but it's, it hasn't been too long that it's been implemented as you know as part of our government you know agencies to protect our borders and also the nation, like within our nation. So it's basically the idea that agents, right? So it's like your normal Americans who decide to apply to be enforcement agents for immigration. And, you know, they get the training that they need. And they're, it's like when you go to school or you go into becoming a police or um, I guess the army and things like that, you get that training that you need. The problem here is that their work or the way that they I guess, do everything that they're supposed to do. It's really inhumane to the tactics that they use. So basically, an ICE agent is in charge of removing, I don't like using illegal, but unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. or someone who has a deportation order. So in this case, everyone who falls within that category of only taking online classes because their university is only providing that, then they fall vulnerable to being removed because, and at the end of the day, when you think about it, ICE has all of their information because they're the ones who, you know, have all their contact info, what school they go to, if they work in the university, they also have all that information as well. So that's like the biggest risk factor because they do have that, all that data available to them. So it's just a matter of how the capacity of them being able to do this, you know, factually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, it, it's really like, like you said, the, the language and the definitions and how we describe the people who are either here legally 
illegally unauthorized. Mm-hmm. Um, that all that all those terms and definitions are really important because you know I even think about like the war on drugs, and you think about mm-hmm. which is probably one of the main reasons why we have such a you want to call it immigration problem on the border in terms of like we don't have like a like a an okay pathway for people to enter and exit our country you know that want to come here even if they just want to come here for work um and is that the case or like you know how would you describe you know the yeah the i think you did it right you know i mean our policies make it so hard to cross the border legally or with you know a visa even if it's a work visa so what happens is that folks find other ways to do it because I think it goes back to that same concept you were um, sharing at the beginning with the animals. It's just a natural instinct to migrate and it comes in our biology to want to do it. And I think when there's barriers or like the border wall that exists to prevent or to show you that you need to keep away or it could also be read as a way to protect the nation. So it shows that there's a certain idea of crisis of allowing the other to come into our country. So, I mean, historically, in regards to Mexico, the visa process is, it's long. Some people have to wait more than 10 years to be even considered to get a visa, to do it the right way. Because we always hear this idea of like, why don't they just do it the right way? Uh, Go back and then apply and do it the right way. But some people can't even be considered to apply. So I think that's where the issue comes in, that it's super exclusive sometimes, that it's just not an existing idea anymore. Um, why would they want to make it so exclusive? You know, I'm going to play, I'm going to play dumb here. Yeah, play, I know. You played the question in terms of like, mm-hmm. well, hey, you know, why wouldn't they come in the right way? You know, why, why is, why does it seem like it's so exclusive? Why is it so much harder for, you know. A certain community, for example. Yeah. To be able yeah. to get into our country. So just just coming here for work and then exiting for work as well. Yeah. So that's, I would say that's one of the themes that would encourage someone to come to the U S right. And it's been like our historical idea of why, you know, just to come here and work and then, you know, send money back to their families or home country and then eventually go back. But people love the U S they want to make a life here or they have kids here. So they want to stay here. So let's say they did have a family back in Mexico in Guadalajara, for example, and they've made a life here in the U.S. They got used to life here. So now they bring their kids here. It may be like a newborn as well. And that's where you would find someone like a childhood arrival, like a DACA, you know, student or DACA recipient. So that person grows up feeling like an American because, you know, they learn everything. They go to school with us. They learn the language. Some of them speak better English than most of us that come back and forth, you know, and I think what ends up happening is that at the end of the day, we start noticing that immigration is only open to a certain type of community, which is usually white European folks. But then if you come from like, I guess a community of color, poor, then you don't become the ideal or the one that we want in our, you know, to be a part of our country legally. So there's a lot of like, race involved in this whole situation and i think it creates moments like the caravan you know where folks have to just leave their countries from el salvador guatemala and then you know cross mexico and then hopefully get to the border and then you don't know what's going to happen thereafter mm-hmm. they arrive well, so it's basically if you're brown and if you come from a poor country then forget it you know it's harder for you 
I mean, is that just the reason though? Again, I'm going to be devil's advocate as much as I want to agree with you. It's like, yeah, is, is, is that just the case? I mean, people, again, you brought up the caravan and like, I cannot stand, you know, I got people in Florida, even family members, just like, is it even safe there? The caravan's got like, yeah, I know what you mean. (laughs) There, please stop watching Fox news. It's not actually news. Just 10 years ago, there was a caliphate coming from um, the Middle East with Obama leading it. It's the president. Like, you make no sense. These no. are no arguments. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Based in facts. And if you want to say there is a caravan, well, you know, ICE and the administration has has caged. I, I, I don't know the exact numbers. I mean, last mm-hmm. time I heard it was like 15,000, you know kids that we've separated from their parents and you know or whether you know even to play devil's advocate again like okay let's say these kids weren't with their parents and someone was just using them to enter and get in the country we aren't sending these kids back we're just keeping them locked up we're on the boosting border. Them in the system we don't know where they're at which was initially what had happened to so they take away your kids they didn't do the right paperwork to see where your kid was going to be sent out to when separating. So just imagine you do this whole ordeal of migrating to in Mexico, it's known as the cemetery of migrants because Mexico is not as friendly to the migrant community from, you know, their South border. So just imagine you don't know where your kid's at your deportation, but your kid is still stuck in the U S or somewhere within these facilities or camps. Yeah, a lot of people don't know. That, I mean, the the wall that's you know between the border between Mexico and I think Guatemala, right mm-hmm. there. I think Mexico has like two neighbors, uh, maybe Nicaragua yeah. as well. So it's uh, like the Tapachula area. You know, I mean, there's a river there, and crossing there seems easier. I mean, way back in the day, like a few years ago, but then now with like all this migration that's calling more attention, there's human barriers also. You know, so even Mexico is playing with the idea of, you know, um, closing their borders in a capacity that's super, you know, it's just basically catering to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you were talking about before about these kids getting lost into the system. I mean, mm-hmm. what is the administration looking to do with them? And what, you know, why are we housing these children or kids? Why aren't we either sending them back or... You know, again, like we talked about, and I think, you know, the biggest issue is Mm -hmm. why is there no proper channels for people to enter a country or become citizens or become, you know, DACA or even a Dreamers? Maybe I'm not sure which one program is going to lead them to a good pathway towards citizenship. But, um, yeah, what what are they looking to do? Like, like again, you say a lot of them are lost in the system. What is that, you know, what are the ideas that are running through Mm -hmm. my head? What does that mean? Yeah, so when I say like lost in the system, it basically means that either they were adopted or they were taken into, you know, a place where they were just housing all the all the kids. So it means that we don't know where maybe a certain amount of them are currently or in that moment where they were, you know, taken to. So, I mean, some kids don't even know the language and officers or agents didn't even know how to speak to them either. So you have this miscommunication as well. So there was no way of solving this issue. So then you have parents who have been deported and they're looking for their kids. And there's been like a lot of like social media advocacy in regards to this um, to find a way to connect the parent with the kid again, even if it means to get, you know, the kid deported as well to reconnect with the family. 
And I remember one story that was really just, you know, emotional in the sense that the kid was then, um, the mom got deported. The kid was still in a facility. They reunite them after a few months. And the kid was really upset with the mom saying, why would you do this to me? So then you have kids who are traumatized with this experience because just think about it, kids in cages, like those two things are not, no, you know what I mean? It's like, no. I mean, I think we treat our pets and our, you know, animals way better than a kid who is not American. So yeah. I mean, just when did our administration get to that? Animals in the zoo better than they would treat these kids coming from, you know, another country. Again, <laughs> illegal or not illegal, there's uh, we can't call ourselves the best country in the world if we don't know how to treat guests as well as our own citizens, which I think we're another human about. being, you know, like we don't have I don't know. We're not. Something happened along the lines to say that even a kid's life is not important to us. And, you know, it's really unfortunate that it became a hot topic in its moment. And there was a lot of support and the media was covering it. But unfortunately, this is something that has been going on for even before this administration. So why? I mean, I appreciate the idea that we're highlighting all the bad things Trump is doing, but all these systems were in place before him. So we need to be super aware of all these things to say that he's able to do everything he's doing now because there was a system in place that he tweaked and is learning how to do and undo to make things happen. Totally. Um, I, you know, how I got to uh, connect with you was covering the stuff you're doing on the, on the murals on the wall on the Tijuana side of the border. Um, you know, and I met a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of stories of yeah. telling about individuals who are down there and who have been deported, you know, who had came here illegally when they were children, you know, four, two, maybe six years old. They lived here their whole lives. Some mm-hmm. of them have even served in the military and yeah. they get shipped back. And, you know, Isaac, who I was talking with today, too, like he's one of the you know stories just like. You know, I get sent here, I'm engaged to somebody, and then I'm over here in this country and I have no idea. I don't even know Spanish that well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, hey, good luck, get the hell out of here. There's no assessment. And you're right, it's not just the Trump administration. A lot of, it it doesn't pay to solve any problems in our our political, you know, atmosphere or environment. Yeah, you think about you know what happens in the Senate, and how many bills are on Mitch McConnell's desk, and again to not even be partisan. I mean, he's just the House major, uh, the Senate Majority Leader. He's mm-hmm. the one who makes that final push, put it in front of the president's office. You know, whipping the votes up, but that stuff doesn't get done. Like I mean, we claim to be the best, but we can't even get a proper bill or amendment or law put in place. I even think I even think in one of the uh, uh, what's it called packages, the stimulus packages, we had to bail out the. Who are those people? Oh, yeah. The lobbyist injury in industry, because they're like, you can't even get a bill or law done in DC unless we're here. Exactly. So yeah. you, it's like, oh my God, we're so dependent, like, you know, like a drug addict to a drip that we <laughs> need these lobbyists in order to actually get shit done. And they're not even looking out for people's best interests, but no. other businesses and corporations. More, pocket, more money in their pockets and. Then, meanwhile, the human life is being affected. I mean, people are still being affected by the lack of support from our own government. You know, it's like people can't even pay their rent. 
And that's just thinking about citizens or people who are here, you know, documented, that are eligible to get some type of government relief or state relief. So, I mean, what's, what are we prioritizing as a nation? Obviously not, not its citizens, you know? No, I I think there's, Mm -hmm. and I I think where the, you know, everything that's happening right now is a very, very, very massive turmoil. You know, everybody is at each other's throats. You're, you're left, you're right, you're liberal, you're conservative, you're racist, you're ignorance. And it's like, it's just like, we've been in this big, like days in terms of, you know, terrible communication issues. We haven't actually thought about policy and in, in taking part in civil duty and civil service in our neighborhoods and our municipalities in the country itself. And now it's like, Hey, we want to get stuff done, but we have no idea how to get it done. Yeah. It's- or we have to find what resources we do have on the ground. That's why I love the work that a lot of activists are doing. And in regards to every movement that's out there, you know, the dreamers, Black Lives Matter, because at the end of the day, you have to be there in person, present. You have to be pushing from every form possible. Like social media is vital, especially right now that with social distancing and, you know, being afraid of getting covid I think it's really great to see what's working with all of these movements to see, okay, how can we maybe change the way that we do politics and actually get something done, you know, on the political realm, because we can't even pass any laws to protect, you know, the dreamers who we so much seek to protect. And that means that we're never going to agree to anything. Nothing's going to happen, even if there's, there's a huge momentum going on and there's a huge support for this community. At the end of the day, something fails and we don't get it done. So is that what's supposed to happen each time? Like, you know, there's unanswered questions for for everything in our government right now. Completely. And like I said, you know, you're you're here as an activist, you know, really pushing and promoting for people who, you know, either, you know, are even more marginalized. And I, I, I think that's the issue that even you know, regular people in this country are feeling marginalized by their government and, you know, bigger interests than themselves. So, you know, people just really need to realize that like, hey, we're all being infringed upon in terms of the things we need, the things we need to be happy. And uh, you know, was it life, liberty, and your pursuit of happiness? Those are all things being taken yeah. away from us. We're working more than ever. We're told we have all these great technologies to do all these amazing things. And they're going to you know, oh, we're going we're to help you set this blood transfusion. It's going to help you live 200 years. Mm-hmm. Yo, we can't even make sure someone's getting fucking insulin. And we exactly. also can't even make sure that someone's not getting type 2 diabetes from their diet and exercising every single day. And it's like, <laughs> there's bigger problems here that we got to work on before we can make that jump into exactly. supremacy or, you know, the next dimension that we want to get into. There's a lot of things we got to refine. And we're like, yeah. like we talked about earlier, we're we're so good in this country at, you know, procrastination or just looking the other way. Like, mm-hmm. okay, hey, this is important now. Whoa, squirrel. It's like the dog yeah. and up. Like, oh, squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> and we completely exactly. forget about everything. <laughs> and while we're at it, we're like posting it on social media while something real is actually happening. And I mean, we all have to take care of ourselves some way. And, you know, self-care is like the biggest thing since, you know, I started college. People always talk about self-care. But I really don't know how to do it. So it's like, what does it even mean? But I think sometimes we take that to an extent to say self-care means I'm going to forget about everything else and just focus on me, which is super dangerous because then 
whatever you're capable of doing to maybe like support something with whatever you're good at already. You're just letting that go because you're more focused on your own needs and not yeah, anyone else's needs. You know, that's like, that's like what happened in America. Like we were forced to, mm-hmm. Hey, you got to come here. You got to work hard. Okay. I think everybody got that message, yes. but then yeah. it came down to, okay, I need a little help, like, but I don't know people who only people who speak like me, uh, speak the same language as me or look like me. So, okay. Everybody breaks off into small little immigrant communities and mm-hmm. ethnic communities where people know each other and they listen to each other. And they believe in the same beliefs and have the same values. So, okay. We told everybody they got to work hard, but now we brought everybody in here. And now after 240, 44 years, we got this little tribal mess of everybody from this place and that place, but everybody's broken off into their own thing and they don't, and you know, it's like all, it's, it's such a simple, not, it's not simple, but like, it's, it's so, it's a basic tribal thing that we've always been fighting as, exactly. as a people and as a, as a species, you want to say. So now it's just like, okay, now we actually have to finally deal with this and we have, we are going to be diverse and live together which is really, really, really hard and why mm-hmm. every, a lot of people are against it, like, just because it is really, really hard and mm-hmm. that's it. Um, now I wanted to go back into the, um, the work on the uh, Tijuana border wall and the mural project you're working on because you have been working with, like I said, kids and now adults that have been mm-hmm. working, that have been experiencing this, you know, immigration turmoil and problems, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, some people who mm-hmm. had it. Um, Even more with Andy, who's like maybe close to 80, 70, you know, Um, he grew up in the Central Valley, Madera, which is right next to Fresno. And then, you know, after serving in the military, he gets deported back to a country where, you know, obviously language is a barrier, getting used to life there. And then at a different age, then it's so hard for someone like Andy in comparison to someone like Isaac to navigate that space in the same way to survive, right? Because at the end of the day, it's survival mode. It's not, I'm just going to adapt my life to the situation. It's like, I need to survive each day because I don't know this place. And even if I know something or I'm proud of being Mexican-American or being born in Mexico, grew up in the U.S., being back in that, you know, place where you were born doesn't necessarily mean that that's where you want to be. And I think that's what a lot of our immigration policies don't, capture all the time you know why do people want to stay here why don't we provide those pathways hearing all these stories even if they do the right thing with with the idea like andy or you know we have other folks there like hector and then um robert who served or someone in their family has served any type of you know uh focus here in the government but at the end of the day even if you were a veteran you could still get deported so that tells you that we don't take care of our own and these gentlemen are actually enlisted or have been enlisted. There's like records of them being in the military. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you see them out in Tijuana. They were recently just this week, you know, showing up and, you know, creating consciousness at the border with, you know, Vanessa Guillen's case, who, you know, we all know what, what happened to her. And it's so unfortunate that like a female of color, you know, from our community as well, like all this situation happened to her. So I think them taking that conversation to the border as well shows like, you know, you don't take care of your own in the U.S., someone who was born in the U.S., then what about us? You know, you already discarded us. So I think that conversation shows that where's the value in human life of people of color from the U.S., from both sides? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that story on the, the is it Fort Hood in Texas or was it North yes, Carolina? Fort- it's in Texas, yeah. That that was a gruesome story. <sighs> well, yeah, I mean, even the uh, other, um, I don't know if he's a private first class like she was, but uh, I don't even know if she's a private first class, but she's a private, and, you know, they were on a manhunt for him, and he, you know, took killed himself yeah. uh, when they were closing in on him. So, you know, you don't want to properly assume until innocent and proven guilty, but, you know. Wow, what a what a yeah, story! Yeah, it, it has shocked a lot of us, and you know, taking away the idea of, I mean, just considering the fact that she spoke up and said what was going on, you know. So, I think there's a lot of power in speaking up because her story ha- will create some type of change. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why I think, like now, connecting it back to the border and that mural that we're working on is the idea of your voice matters. You speaking out is more than just a political act. You're validating your existence. And there's many people that want to hear what you have to say to learn from your experience. Completely. And for everybody who doesn't know um, the story that happened, there was a a young woman, 19 years old, I believe she was. Super young. Fort Hood, Texas. And she would, had spoken up about, um, some sexual, you know, call it abuse, harassment she was experiencing um, in her platoon or regiment. Uh, I don't, don't know the exact term for it, but she um, had been voicing this uh, opinion for, you know, weeks or even months. And uh, about two months ago or even a month ago, she went missing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like a week or two ago that they had found out that they had found her body. Um like her bones like out in the you know marsh or something and like mm-hmm. they, again one of these cases like we're seeing a lot of police um police brutality going on it's like the the channels we have for people to um make disputes or claims or you want to say even suggestions to make things better they kind of don't exist and um like i said as a, as a white person I think a lot of other white people are experiencing this for the first time as well. Like, oh, wait, now we're this is experiencing us. We don't like this either. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there's a yeah. lot of stuff that's happening to everybody. And, you know, a lot more people have been marginalized for a lot longer time than you. How do you develop the empathy? How do you take a second to listen to people who have been more marginalized or marginalized just in general for a longer period of time as you? I think uh, the weird one. You know, again, like where you're just like, oh, you're almost, you're almost listening, you're almost getting it. When, yeah. yeah, especially like you know the Me Too movement and kind of what we're seeing with like police brutality right now is like a, a somewhat of a Me Too movement in that that people are speaking up. We're seeing all these, all these things that we didn't, we don't like about these systems that we thought were the systems that were always going to be. But if we know anything, that the only constant people like to say is change. I think is just chaos. There's always going to be chaos. Nothing's ever going to be perfect or or just be in general like reality Mm -hmm. existence like it's there's so much stuff in play like to make sure something's always going to change like we have to be able to pivot and move and grow Mm -hmm. with everything that's going on so you know you're like listening well i I can't say what i want to say you can't say what you used to be able to say and i'm like that's not a bad thing it's just hey you're actually learning right now that what you're saying might offend somebody and they don't want to hear it. You can still say it, 
Yeah, but you're gonna get but, called out. <laughs> yeah. But now right? you yeah. now you know that you know someone's gonna take offense to it. And maybe somebody's not just gonna come up to you and say, Hey, listen, I really didn't like what you said back there. Kind of really made me feel this way. Someone might try and come for your job. Someone might, you know, try and come for your livelihood. Like these are these are interesting times and with cancel culture and everything going on, like, you know, it's not you should never worry all the time. Yeah. People should not have to worry about what they say. But you should be able to have a conversation with somebody to say and understand when you say something, it has repercussions, it has consequences. But you have free speech. You can say what you want in America. You want to fly a Nazi flag as much as I think that's the worst and terrible thing? You do that on your private property. You want to fly a Confederate flag? Go ahead. Private property, do it. But don't tell other people that they have to fly that flag as well. Or don't get mad when someone stares at you a certain way. I mean, in Fresno, we have that. And you you drive and you get closer to a city called Clovis. You see a lot of that. Really? So you feel uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, you feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> or when my parents are in the car, I'm just like, I just roll my eyes. I'm like, why is that necessary? Why do you have to parade it around? What are you trying to say? But I think you're right in that idea that you could do all you want to do, but just know that something else might manifest from your actions or your words. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, it's so funny. The uh, you know when you ask somebody why they still fly the Confederate flag, and I'm from the South, and mm-hmm. I've seen plenty of those Confederate flags. And it's like, oh well, it's our history and our heritage, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. So you know, China hasn't forgot who they were. They've had their country burned down and bombed. Japan had two nuclear bombs. I mean, mm-hmm. they didn't forget. They changed the flag, the em- the 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 emperor with the sun with the red stripes coming through it. They they gave it up. Like Rome was burned down, you know, 10, 15, 20 times. We haven't forgot about Rome. We still go visit as a tourist attraction. Like, oh, the Colosseum, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it, again, it's like, it's just like the meaning, the message that's behind it. Like, I mean, there's, what? that's why, why do you think we're throwing down all these statues? Because monuments, you know, manifest trauma, they try to input this idea that this is what historically is accepted, right? Even if it's the wrong side of history, even if it means, you know, killing and massacres, but bringing them down, it's saying we're not okay with it anymore. We want to transform the way that we're talking about (laughs) a historical moment. And there's so many people who are against it, but I mean, if you love something, you're willing to transform it. I couldn't agree more. And it's funny, like they'll, they'll try and throw up a 1984 quote about tearing down statues and rewriting history. And it's like, no, no, no. Those things weren't put in place even before the Civil War. Those things were put in place in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. They were put up during Jim Crow. I mean, even there's a yeah. <laughs> there's a Robert E. Lee statue in Arizona, which wasn't even in the South or the Union. It wasn't even a state yet. Like and in another they, space, yeah. They, they put one up in like the 1980s, 1990s. And it's like, come on. Come on. Exactly. You, yeah. you don't see the correlation <laughs> between... You know, what, what was the point behind that? Yes, I'm a history major. I still have learned about these things. I think you even want to learn about these things as a history major when no one else talks about them. Mm-hmm. It makes it more fascinating. But they're not going to disappear. And again, it's you can't help but look at it like, hey, why are we being strangled by this resistance for change in our country? Or just, you know, being a, a young activist, you know, you, you want to see positivity. You want to see change in the world and you know, opportunity for more and more people, but <sighs> there's always that pushback because I don't know where this idea comes from that if we all have 
dignity in life, that means that my dignity is at risk, right? So it's like, there's always this idea. And I think it's just historically represented the idea that we need someone beneath us for us to have some type of commodity or to have the idea to then, then we could move up the ladder. And that's unfortunate because at the end of the day, it's like we're just reproducing different systems. So we can't imagine a world without police. We can't imagine a world without like this historical monuments, but then we're making it happen. So. Well, I mean, the quote reigns, reigns supreme. Ignorance is bliss. And I think you had mentioned it um, in terms of the historical significance of why we had immigration in our country. You know, once we started to really expand, manifest destiny, mm-hmm. push out west, we needed people to work. We needed people to build the railroads. We needed people to start, mm-hmm. you know, once we got into this industrial age to really start filling these factories, to move in, you know. And we were able to do that with a lot of European immigration in the mid-19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. You know, the South European movement, the Eastern European immigration that came in. And that filled up these uh, these factories um, and warehouses. However, you know what gets to the point, like or the, the initial point you're trying to get get out with this was, you know, we needed people to come in and work. And okay, you have to work, and like that's it. But America was different in the fact that we still had that that ladder that you could climb out, that you could always, you know, improve your class, your socioeconomic class, and yeah. you know, but now everybody is having a hard time climbing that socioeconomic ladder. Everybody is having mm-hmm. a hard time like trying to, you know, grow. And I, you know, I think a lot of the stuff going on, you know, whether it's police brutality, this and that, it's again, these police officers aren't the, the most affluent, well-off individuals. You know, it's, it's again, this like little socioeconomic strife that's being clouded mm-hmm. in, you know, the race relations to the police brutality, to the immigration issues and problems we're having is, you know, just a lot of people are mad. A lot of, a lot of people, aren't able to be happy or like seek their happiness on a daily basis, but, or, you know, throughout their lifetime, but let's sink back into immigration and migration Mm -hmm. and policy. Um, What, what are some solutions that we have, or that at least that you have or things that you've worked on or studied for, let's say just uh, immigration policy in the United States. So in regards to my research, I focus more on childhood arrivals. So those that we recognize as the dreamers or the ones who are under DACA, But I expand the idea that anyone who migrated as a child or during their youth years in the U.S. should be considered for some type of relief of deportation. So deportation should not be used on this community at all, Mm -hmm. which means that even if, you know, because, I mean, life happens, you might, you know, commit a crime or an infraction that then starts accumulating into something else or the way that you were raised allows you to you know, choose a different type of life than what most of us would want. So what basically I'm trying to propose is the idea to abolish and, you know, really take away the idea that anyone who came in here to the U.S., you know, when they were children, to actually be able to get some type of relief and have a pathway to become either a permanent resident or a citizen, but to delete deportation because I think, Having that cloud of deportation over you growing up in the U.S. or knowing that you're vulnerable to it for one little thing or another, it's not a good way to live. So the idea would just be to take away deportation, at least for this group, and then let's find a way to push forward for 
a policy or legislation that would actually incorporate them legally into the U.S. And what does that look like in terms of like, you know, do we want to add and provide like additional schooling systems for these uh, dreamers or people in the DACA program? Like what, like what, like what does that look like in terms of like, okay, you got the go. What kind of like things do we want to start implementing in terms of like are those facilities or those additional schools? Like what kind of processing needs? Because again, you know, I would say that we don't have enough even judges in courts yeah. down on the border that are even dealing with all this. Like we could, you know, hire so many more ju- judges, federal judges to actually be in courts down on the border that actually processed and de- dealt with all these things. A, a bunch load more clerks that were able to actually deal with all this. But I think, you know, like some judges are, yeah. are one, one judges to 15,000 cases, you know, yeah. it's like, how it, how is it same thing with like medicine like how are we going to expect one doctor to spend just four to ten minutes understand why your problem or issues is and then just send you, off? you okay. exactly mm-hmm. so i guess thinking about it in practical terms like what would we do then let's say there's an agreement hopefully about this right to say okay we all agree that we don't want deportation to be the punishment for childhood arrivals, including those with DACA, including those with a criminal history, that the only thing that matters here is that they came as children in the U.S. and, you know, they spent their life here. It means that they came here undocumented or they came here with a visa but overstayed their visa or they didn't renew or someone who came in here with a permanent residence. So anyone who's a non-citizen and grew up in the U.S. So you would have people from different ages at this moment. So you would have you know, kids who are recently coming in. And then you would also have adults who are still either permanent residents, which would be most likely the case. So this idea would invite, you know, to create amnesty for this group. And you would just have to provide certain documents to show that, in fact, you did come here as a minor. And that's it, you know, and maybe provide proof of, I don't know, what what else would immigration need. But it seems that the idea of erasing criminal history would help so many because at the end of the day DACA doesn't provide that opportunity for you if you do have a criminal history or if you didn't come into the U.S. at a certain um during a certain time period now what happens to these people's parents in that meantime let's say they all end up getting uh you know caught into an ice raid oh yeah they get deported yeah they would get deported so either you have um, expedient deportation or, which is most likely the case for some, is that you are put into prison or a detention facility. You serve a certain amount of time or while you're being processed out of the country, you spend some time in detention center. In a detention center, even if it's a weekend, which is something that has happened to Tanya, and she narrates that in her narrative, who is also part of the mural. She was detained on a Friday by the police Eyes picked her up and then they processed her out of the U.S. during that weekend. So even if, you know, you didn't commit a crime, you would still go through these different channels. And Isaac narrates that as well in his narrative. He's like, I didn't even go. And I remember that line clearly. He would say, not even on a field trip would I go. Did we ever go to a jail? But this was my first time experiencing this. So imagine you have the ideal immigrant that we always talk about, someone who goes to school, tries to stay out of trouble, but then they experience this thing on their way out of the country, which is a forced removal. It's, I mean, there, it's just not a humane thing to do. There's no humane way to do this, but to delete deportation as the punishment for them. Um, what do these facilities look like? Have you ever seen one or been to one? 
No, I never seen one in person. And, you know, I'm thankful for that because I think if, I mean, just hearing the stories and then working with different narratives and also seeing the other digital stories in where we do incorporate images and, you know, hearing their stories, it's not like the best place to be or to house anyone. Um, and more so right now with COVID, it's like they're being sprayed with um, toxics. And I think, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to kill them while they're in there? What's going on? They're being and, sprayed with what? Um, with some chemicals. In terms of like to try and keep them like... It's supposed to keep them... Supposedly what I've read, it's to keep them healthy. So I think it's every 15 minutes. But it's um, heavy chemicals. Oh I mean, God. it's all over the internet. And I mean, no. Like, that's not... No, that's not practical in any way. You got to send me a link to this. This is yeah. nuts. That's... Ugh. I mean, again, I'm a... I want to see, you know, put a see put a visual to it. It's always I think better and always moving to for an individual to see like what uh to actually get a gist of what's happening and what's going on. But it's to just imagine that they're okay. We're gonna keep you safe, but we're gonna spray you with uh. Well, I mean, you know, it just makes me think of. I mean, it's not the first time it happens. So there's images, and I'll send you a link of that too. The bracero, so the migrant workers who came in during World War II to support the troops that went overseas, you know, to fight. And then we needed workers in our economy. So what ended up happening is that before they were eligible to full-on be called braceros and have that permit to work in the U.S., they had to go through a checkpoint and where they were basically naked, forcedly naked, usually men. And they were inspected by officers and also by uh doctors and they were also sprayed with pesticide so there's images of this so this is not the first time we treat immigrants in this way it's just in a different context so i mean we're known for this it's just not it's not something that we're proud of so we don't talk about it yeah i mean a lot of people don't want to talk or look at the the poor parts of the of u.s history i mean you think about the tuskegee airmen you know getting them all syphilis when you weren't knowingly telling them they were in some kind of experiment to, to yeah. see what they were dealing with stuff. Um, the craziest one is the, uh, the Harvard uh, um, LSD studies. Um, what's oh, yeah. the, big, mm-hmm. the big major experiment called uh, Operation something. And um, there was recently a guy who came out with a book who can even tie not just Ted Kaczynski, who was a Unabomber who went nuts and he's out, out, out there running around town uh, blowing up uh, abortion clinics, but mm-hmm. he's um, they could even tie it to Char- Charles Manson now, and Charlie Manson, who's running around, you know, doing what he did and actually getting those LSD doses, going in and out of jail, being out and let out of jail. So it's, you know, there's a lot of things that, uh, <laughs> uh, MK Ultra, that's what it was called. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, what were we doing, or what? Why were we trying to do this to? two people to test and experiment them on to see if they can handle and, and treat things. But I think that just comes down to uh, we're way too closely tied. I think uh, Americans are way, way, way more violent and way more barbaric than we like to think we are, you know, or else we wouldn't spend as much money. It. You know, I think we become aware with, you know, people telling their stories or learning in college when you take maybe a class on Latin America history or literature and you start reading about 
the military coup in Chile, you start realizing that the U.S. had a lot to do with that as well and the torture and disappearance of so many. Then you start realizing that we're not so great and that we have a dark history, not just within our own nation, but abroad. And that's what causes migration as well. So we have all these interventions in you know, Latin America. And what do we expect people to do? To stay in a country that we you know, manifested <laughs> all this violence in. Where I don't they laugh, go? but like, oh my God, yeah. Right? Like, where are they going to go? They're going to come to the U.S. because at the end of the day, we have fault in this. Well, especially, I mean, you mentioned it, the, uh, the coup in Chile is, yeah. I was uh, in Santiago and I went to, and it's, it's you know, surprisingly the first 9-11 because it was, you know, happened mm-hmm. on September 11th, yes, then exactly. 19, mm-hmm. 1973. And oh my God, you leave that museum and you're just like, I don't know how no one wanted to shoot me as I left that place. Like if they knew I was an American, like, yeah. oh my God, I can't believe we did that in terms of supporting the military branch that had these people on a, um, what is it? We just had that here in LA where they put people, you have a, to go home by a certain time. You have a curfew. Yes, um, in Spanish, it's toque de queda. They had an 8 p.m. curfew every day yeah. for 12 years. People snitching on each other because mm-hmm. they were worried, you know, that the whole idea of communism that we, we, we claim to be yeah. so scared of and not want to do here. But we put we put people through those situations in other places. The the military getting people with cinder blocks and dumping them in helicopters mm-hmm. off the coast. And you're just like, oh, my God. There's just so much like atrocity that we as humans do to other humans for different interests, right? At the end of the day is power. And I think about it, like everything that Trump is doing, he is spreading fear and we are feeling fear regardless if you're an immigrant or not. You're feeling fear for even now, like with universities being forced to somehow think about in-person, you know, classes there's fear also involved in that situation. So living in a country of fear, what are you trying to do with that sentiment? You're trying to control or I don't know what it is. It's just controlling. And in this sense, it's we're trying to control immigration by scaring folks who are watching Fox News, for example, or reading articles that are not well you know, written and are saying that the caravan brings people who kill. Or to say, you know, all these things about Mexicans. So I think at the end of the day, it's like working through this lens of fear is not helping anything to, you know, progress or to really create real solutions. It's just keeping us busy talking about it, but we're not putting any action into it. No, I think I, uh, I had my aunts send this. It's a little meme, you know, this is America. <laughs> 14% of, of adults can't read. Only 13% of adults can read at a proficient level. 28% of adults didn't read a book in the last year. 50% of adults can't read a book written at eighth grade level. And it's like, that's a 2020 literacy report. And it's like, wow. like guys, like, how great are we? You know, or we want to make it, keep it great, you know, or make it great again. Like, fear is one of the most basic instincts that we can invoke and then it's also one of the tools that we use to control people mm-hmm. and you know i've been talking about this to a bunch of people i've had on the show you know it, the show always leads into this you know the the internet we we treat it like it's like such a toy but it's like mm-hmm. you can't go on there and throw poor information out there 
and say, you know, it's like screaming fire in a crowded theater. You, yeah, you, see, you see the, the way people, you know, this some of my family members just posting stuff online. Like, no, you can't post that. That's not real. <laughs> That's like, not look at true. the source. <laughs> you know, I always find myself telling my mom because uh, with the COVID situation that was happening and at the beginning, like we wouldn't really know where to get your real news from because it seemed to be a really new thing to everyone. So who do you trust in what they're saying? Like, what are the measures that you're supposed to take for safety? So a lot of our family members or friends start sharing a random article saying that you could die if this happens or if this, this and that with COVID. And then someone reads it, they're going to think it's real because it's on the internet or because it's been shared X amount of times. But just because it's on the internet doesn't mean that it's real. <laughs> to, <Yeah>. all the, uh, <laughs> to all the conspiracy theories, uh, theorists like defense, the government hasn't done a great job of, you know, being the ultimate purveyor of truth and like, or just treating the citizens like adults. But as you can see here, most of us or a lot of us still have a hard time reading, understanding, comprehending. And like you mentioned, you know, just cause it's on the internet doesn't mean it's real. I think mm -hmm. a lot of us, a lot of us don't realize again that, you know, we talked about once you come to this country or came to this country in the 18th, 19th, 20th century, you found people that looked like you, you went to those those places of people that look like you believed in you, the things you were able to recognize from your own country. It really, mm -hmm. really the most important one was value systems. Yeah. And even now we, we, the value system is one of the biggest purveyor of who we connect with, associate with and mm -hmm. how everybody's like judging each other, even on association and friendships now. Yeah. Um, so the fact that all this is, is happening, God, I'm just going too deep that I'm forgetting the, the, the point I'm trying to get into. Oh, yeah. So even like college, we think about, I think only 33% of Americans have a college degree or finish with a college degree. That's still such a small bubble. Yeah. And that is not a majority. And you think of the things that you or I have been through in terms of, or even I'd say most people are our generation. Like, hey, if you went to college, even high school, and I went to a really tough prep school, even if I went there for sports, but it was like that magnifying glass over your head. Hey, if you cheat, if these yeah. sentences, not six different words from where you got it from, or an idea is not close to this, we're going to expel you. And again, they did it out of fear, but it was like, oh, yeah, God. I had to make sure the footnotes, yeah. the, the whatever it is, when you, ta <laughs> you tag someone in it. I forgot the name of that thing. Um, uh, it has to be exactly that. And that even in college, I'd write a 50 page final paper on fascism from 1914 to 1945 in Italy and Germany. It's like, how am I going to write that many pages? But like to figure that out and then put that out there, it's like, it's like you had to go through the ringer. You have to understand what you can use, what you can't use, what is actually real. What and arguments are being made and are they valid or not? And now you see people who either don't want to have those arguments, can't have those arguments, mm -hmm. or the sad part, is they don't even know how to come up with their own original ideas. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that. Oh, yeah. I, I they, that, they, yeah. Can't, they, they don't know how to express themselves. And they don't express what they experience, what they see in the world, which is mm -hmm. sad. And, and I, I, I want more people to be able to, because, you know, what's so unique about a republic and a democracy, mm -hmm. ancient Greece and how it was different from Persia and you had these rivalries was that you had the agora. You had the place where you can just go in the middle of the square and have arguments and conversation and things happened because, you know, we were able to have the greatest ideas weren't able to rise at the top. We could understand where people were coming from because we could hear where they were, what they were, were relating. You know, people were able to lie and fabricate things, you know, which is different than Persia. But 
that was so unique and we're, we're and just not think about it like that. if you can't express your ideas of what you're feeling or an argument that's oppression which means that where are we getting our outlets so that's why i think right now like our focus time is so little that we want everything given to us in like sound bites. We want all this information to come to us without having to think so much. So that's why a president like Trump works because he says one thing he said, it said in such a way that some people connect with him. That's why we have, you know, other communities just saying, well, this is how it's always been because they don't want to push forward for something else to, to change. So if you don't have people who, not necessarily have an education, but know how to defend themselves with words, with reading, with arguments, or even writing, then you are creating a population that's just going to be submissive. And I mean, why do you think with the military coup, and I'm pretty sure you know this, a lot of books were burned because the knowledge that they produced was, you know, put in danger everything that was happening in Chile. It had a different truth. So you burn them down or you just get rid of them. So if we don't have people telling their stories, then we are never going to really know what's been going on from a personal perspective. Agreed. And the only counter I would say is that, you know, and I don't see this as too much of a negative thing. I don't think mm -hmm. that's a majority of people, you know, from the counter side of, you know, I want to say the far left. It's, you know, they're mad. They're upset right now. People are expressing and things mm -hmm. yes they shouldn't be burning down cities and they shouldn't be doing this stuff but it's such a small majority of mm -hmm. of of what had happened and things that did happen yeah and no one is coming for you no one's coming for you in your home <laughs> we're gonna steal your books or burn your books like that's yeah. not there there might they're be not, people on the, on, the, on the fringe there who want to do that but they're not going to those aren't people who have sway and that want and can act on those things and no one's going to let them do that. So please learn to speak for yourself. Go buy a book today. I think 50% of Americans haven't bought a book or read a book in the past year. Please go read, get a newspaper. They're cheap and there's a lot of stuff in it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what, what bias or basis you have. You can take whatever information you want from it and try and understand where the other person's coming from. It's why we do podcasting, everybody. It's why you're listening to the show. I want you to take something away from the guests we have and the conversations we have. It's all for you. We do this for you. Exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. But, Lisbeth, thank you so much. It's so great to connect with you again. Um, thank I'm, you. It's always great. I'm hoping we can get back down to the border or there's some more videos that we can shoot to highlight, you know, um, a lot of people who are, uh, you know, on the wrong side of a, a lot of things going on, especially uh, immigration is our people. And we're trying to make everybody's life as great as possible and the best we possibly can. But um, please let people know where they can find your work, where they can connect with you, or even um, take part in some of the projects you're working on, whether that's voluntary or um, I don't know if you guys are taking donations for, you know, some of the charities and stuff you're working with. Yeah. So currently this week, I reopened the idea of working on the mural. So we'll be adding four new faces to the mural, which was the original plan. But due to COVID, we had to really figure out a different way to do it because there's just no way that I could have the same amount of volunteers with me in Tijuana because it's just not doable right now with like health restrictions and for everyone's safety. So we're working on four different images, two in Fresno and then hopefully two in Tijuana. But if not, four of them will be painted in the U.S. side in Fresno. So I'm actually working on creating a little studio here in my parents' house to be able to work on this. 
Um, so my idea would be to start painting in mid-August and then head down to Flies of Tijuana in September and find a way to do it and just put the images down at the border. So if you want to know more about Flies of Tijuana Mural Project, you could always Google the website. And if you put Flies of Tijuana Mural Project on Google, you will see the website. So it's actually my personal website, which is lisbetdelacruzsantana.com. And you would have all the information. We're also on Instagram as PDT Mural Project. And I mean, I'm pretty good at keeping people, you know, aware of what's going on with the project and inviting folks to support it in any way. So I'll be rolling out a little bit more information this week and next week. Yeah, keep me posted. I'd love to go down there. Um, is the border open right now? Or is I know it was essential travel was allowed, but I think yeah. they closed down to essential travel now. So the last thing I heard is that, I mean, some of my friends went down there to visit and visit family without it being essential. Um, so they were able to come back and forth. But right now, after the 4th of July weekend, it's, I don't know the situation yet. So it all depends on what's going on that week at the border. But what I've yeah. seen people are crossing back and forth. So I would say it's okay. open, but yeah. limited. Well, I'm hoping to go down there with you guys and uh, yeah, help out and just take part in it. And uh, everybody, I also did shoot a video uh, with Al Jazeera yeah. and then for my own channel. So you can go learn about, you know, not just uh, Elizabeth, um, but a lot of people who've uh, been affected by immigration policy over the past 50, 60 years, as well as some of the artists like uh, Mauro. Carrera? Yeah. Yeah, Mauro's uh, great. And yeah, check out his work as well. Yeah. He's great. You check out his work, and there'll be links to all the stuff that uh, Elizabeth has talked about. And please to connect with her. And um, hold on one second. I'm going to sign out. I got to do the whole sign out stick. Thank okay. you everybody for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to the Bus Driver Experience. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, remember, guys, like, share, subscribe. Send these um, videos all around the airwaves. Let people know about you know, some of the stories that we talked about. And, uh, you know, be an advocate for change. And it all starts with you. It's all about taking the first step, whether that's clicking a button or whether that's opening a book or walking outside your door. You did the work. That's a great way to get going. And that's what everybody needs. And that's what people need to make change happen. So take the first step today. Open the door. Open a book. Get out there. And make sure you like and subscribe to all this stuff so we continue to grow. You have amazing more conversations. And you're either on the bus or off the bus. Uh, for those who...